Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. A couple of months ago, I did an Instagram Live with Bergen Hyde of Womb Circle. And Bergen mentioned that in deconstructing our internal patriarchy, which is something that I think a lot about, there was some work in that process that's done with the head. It's rational, intellectual work. And when she said that, I envisioned kind of being out in the sunlight, kind of above ground. And then she said, and there's different work that's done more with the heart and the gut, emotional soul work. And when she said that, I envisioned being down deep underground, like in a cave or in the bowels of the earth. And I realized that most of the work that I've done over the past year on this podcast has been head work, like above ground in the sun, defining terms and tracing historical patterns and analyzing books and analyzing laws. I feel like I have also done a lot of emotional work. I have felt a lot along the way, too. Listeners know by now that I do not shy away from a laugh or a cry. So it hasn't all just been completely rational and void of emotion. But I have told Bergen before, we met for lunch before we did our Instagram Live, and I told her that I have not really felt ready to go into the belly of the earth and have my own personal reckoning with this stuff. Kind of to give myself credit, I I have felt personally called to do an intellectual academic project, and it's been a critically important part of my personal life and something that I felt that I wanted to offer to the world. But there's a part of me that knows that I need to do a journey down and a journey in. It reminds me of what the Greeks call a katabasis, which is a, a journey down into the underworld or a cave. But I'm kind of scared of what I might find down there, and I don't know if I'm up for it right now. (laughs) I don't know if I'm up for the the anger and the grief that I might feel if I did that soul work. So I was thinking about that when I did that Instagram live live with Bergen. But then within a a day of each other, Bergen and a very dear long-term friend happened to bring up Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Pincola Estes which is a book about this very soul work. And so the fact that two different friends mentioned it right within about 24 hours of each other, I took it as a sign and Bergen said she would do the episode with me. So down into the cave we go. (laughs) And Bergen is here today with us. And I want to welcome you, Bergen. I'm so, so grateful that you're here to be our guide and kind of take us on this journey with you through this book and through this material that's really as I understand it, kind of your life's work. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I just, I adore you. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to have this conversation with you. Thanks. I adore you too. And, and so I'm really fascinated and grateful for your work too. So before we talk about the book, as usual, I'd love you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are personally before we dive into the material. Awesome. Okay. Uh, Well, yeah, my name is Bergen. It actually, the name Bergen means meadow of the mountain, which I really love. That feels just really cozy and safe to me. So I sometimes think about that Mm. um, and hope I can be that kind of place for other people. Um, I've lived in Provo now, um, Provo, Utah for the past 13 years with my husband and our three kids. I love to dance. I like salty snacks. I'm not a, I mean, I like sweets, but I would prefer like chips and popcorn and 
crunchy things, um, savory things. I do love spending time in the mountains, especially in bodies of water. I'm a really like fiery kind of confrontational person like we talked about earlier (laughs) in our live. We talked about a little bit. Um, Okay, so sorry. I am such a wimp about cold water. So when you say in the mountains, in the water, you're (laughs) talking about like melted glaciers, right? (laughs) Totally. Yep. I love like, yeah, hydrotherapy. I like cold water. Awesome. It just You're makes brave. my whole nervous system is like, zoom, like it feels yeah. so happy. Um, <laughs> I've got some Viking blood and a lot of fire. So the cold you must. The water feels really good. Awesome. Um, I'm the oldest of four kids. I grew up in Wisconsin, but my family is from Provo. My parents are from here. We actually live in their neighborhood, the neighborhood my parents grew up in. So um, I'm the co-founder and creative director, uh, director of Loom which I founded with my two sisters, Gentry and Sarah. We hold women's circles, workshops, retreats, one-on-one mentoring um, that are designed to support women in healing from internalized patriarchy and to help them learn how to integrate the sacred feminine and reclaim their personal sovereignty. Yeah, so that's the work I do. And I'm currently um, in a training, an eight-month training program with Sarah Durham Wilson, it's a training program helping women move from the archetypal kind of wounded maiden into the mature feminine. The maiden to mature feminine is, um, you know, an archetypal journey that's meant to just be like a natural cycle that women go through. But because we live in a very patriarchal world, those rites of passages aren't really happening. So, um, yeah, I'm training under Sarah um, to learn how to be a facilitator for that transition for that initiation. That's really interesting to me. One thing that has come up a lot, like over and over in the historical project that I've done with lots of different books has been even like a couple hundred years ago, people were commenting on this, that what patriarchy does is it infantilizes women and keeps them in a child role for their whole lives, right? there's this, you know, patronizing relationship that women have sometimes even with their husbands and with, with all men and it keeps them undeveloped. So I, I think that's really amazing and fascinating that there's like, you could be a practitioner to help women through that specific transition and jump that, yeah, that, I mean, what I just heard you say is that women are supposed to go through that naturally, but that it's kind of stunted a little bit. Is it, am oh, I understanding yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, patriarchal, you know, the overlay of a patriarchal value system on top of kind of the natural uh, cycle of things um, ends up really wounding women and this process of growing up. Yeah. This process Mm -hmm. of self-actualization, this process of maturing and yeah, it gets really interrupted and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of wounds there that need to be tended to so that that um, kind of initiatory move from being maiden into the mature kind of feminine aspects of life can happen. Yeah. And we just, yeah, we just, our culture doesn't really have rites of passage for women to process that shift. And a lot of women, um, at least from my faith, from our faith tradition, right, they move straight from kind of this very wounded maiden kind of phase right into young motherhood, having children. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a very, very difficult, there's a lot of, you know, postpartum depression and a lot of loneliness and isolation that can happen because women aren't really initiated into being able to hold that ground for someone else because they haven't learned how to do it for themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it becomes, yeah, it can become really problematic. That's really, really needed. I wish you could reach everybody. Me too. I do too. Oh, man. Well, listeners, look into it. It's womb circle, right? On Instagram. Yeah, our handle is womb underscore circle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Highly, highly recommended. Okay. Thoughts on breaking down patriarchy, Bergen? That's the next question I usually ask people, either the podcast or the topic in general or the book, however you want to answer that. Well, I mean, first of all, I think going back to what you said at the beginning that breaking down patriarchy has been a very like intellectual pursuit, you know, kind of in the upper world, so to speak. I, I don't know. I, my gift is in the underworld. That's kind of my jam is to be down (laughs) in the, in the mud, in the dark, in the, in the dark caves of people's lives and my own life. And it's not really my forte to do all of the research and the background and to understand, you know, the history of patriarchy. So your podcast has made that aspect of patriarchy so accessible to someone like me who's doing a lot more of the kind of esoteric stuff. It's so, so important um, to me to have that work available to me. And I just... I'm so grateful. And I think it's so important because it helps to bridge maybe the inner experience we're having. It gives like, why do I feel this way on the inside? Why all of these like weird things happening psychologically or inside my soul? And then to have a bridge to explain like, oh, you're not actually crazy. Like this is, it's a thing. And it's been a thing for a long time. And we've been asking these questions for a long time. And we've been and, and to see kind of the way that patriarchy has developed over time, it really helps us to get more clear on what needs to be changed, what we need to work through on a practical level so that it's safer for us to do that more internal work. Anyway, I just think it's so vital to have both aspects, both the intellectual and the more kind of inner work. And I'm so grateful that there's somebody who has that gift because it's mm. not my gift. I'm so, oh. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that you answered the call to do it. It's so, uh, such a powerful inroad for people and such a and an important, you know, piece to the puzzle that needs to get clicked in for the bigger picture to be seen. So, thank you. Oh yeah. man. Well, I didn't mean to fish for a compliment. Now I'm feeling like, <laughs> like <laughs> Well, I, I give it freely. I I just I'm a fish jumping into your boat. You don't even have to work for it. Oh, thank you, Bergen. Well, we're a good team. We're a good team. I'm so grateful for the work you do. And I, and yeah, this conversation will be a really neat bridge for me personally and hopefully for listeners as well. Um, okay, the next step is to introduce the author. So I'll do that quickly and then we'll jump into the book. Clarissa Pincola Estes was born in January 1945. She is of Native American and Mexican heritage, and she grew up in a rural village with a population of just 600 people near the Great Lakes. So not far from where you're from, actually, Bergen. Yeah, totally. Midwest. Yeah. So she probably loved cold water, too. (laughs) (laughs) 
She was raised in the now-vanished oral tradition of her war-torn immigrant refugee families who could not read or write or did so haltingly and for whom English was their third language overlying their ancient natal languages. As an older child, she was adopted into an immigrant and refugee family of majority Magyar and minority Danube Swabian. And I have never had never heard of that term before. It just means from Hungary and Germany, but the tribal people of those countries. And, and I should mention, too, that this bio is taken from her website. So this is the way she wanted to present her background. Uh, so she says they were wise in the ways of nature, planting animals and making everything from scratch, from shoes to songs. Thus, she was raised immersed in the oral tradition of old mythos and stories, songs and chants, dances and ancient healing ways. Her writing is deeply influenced by her family, people who were hands-on farmers, shepherds, hopsmeisters, wheelwrights, weavers, orchardists, tailors, cabinet makers, lace makers, knitters, horsemen, and horsewomen from their old countries. Dr. Estes is a poet and a lifelong activist in service of the voiceless. As a post-trauma recovery specialist and psychoanalyst who works with persons traumatized by war, exiles, and torture, and as a journalist covering stories of human suffering and hope. She received her doctorate from the Union Institute and University, and it was in ethnoclinical psychology, the study of social and psychological patterns of cultural and tribal groups with an emphasis in indigenous history. Her book that we'll be discussing today, Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype, was on the New York Times bestseller list for 144 weeks. As a post-trauma specialist, Estes began her work in the 1960s at a veterans hospital in Illinois, and she was honored to work with World War I, World War II, Korean, and Vietnam combat soldiers who were living with quadriplegia, and they were incapacitated by the loss of their limbs from the war. I was really touched by this, Bergen, to know that she devoted so much of her healing work to men too, men who had been damaged. And I was just reflecting for a minute about how war and how throughout time people have sent their sons and husbands and brothers to be slaughtered in, you know, in the service of like a few violent men. I just think like that's the most virulent form of patriarchy I can think of and a way that patriarchy kills and maims men as well. So. That was very touching to me. She's worked at other facilities caring for severely injured castaway children, um, shell-shocked war veterans, which we now know or refer to as PTSD, and their families. And she's worked at men's penitentiaries and women's penitentiaries. And um, she just goes to where pe people are most in need, it feels. Um, she's worked with you know women who have suffered childbearing loss, the families of murder victims, and one thing that also touched me on a personal level is that she served the Columbine High School community after the massacre. And that's close to my heart. I grew up in Colorado, and Columbine High School was about 10 miles away from my house. It was a neighboring school district. But my brother, the girl he was dating at the time, went to Columbine, and she actually ate lunch in the cafeteria where the, the big shooting happened. But it happened on my brother's birthday. So she went home to email him for his birthday, and that's why she wasn't in the cafeteria that day. 
that she lost friends that day. So when I when I read that she had worked with Columbine High School, and she lives in Colorado now, I think, or at least part-time in Colorado, that was touching for me personally. But um, she's worked with survivors of the, the September 11th attacks. And she testifies before state and federal legislatures on welfare reform, educational and, high, and school violence, child protection, mental health, just a long list of trying to make the world a better place, especially for the most vulnerable in this world. So I was so moved reading about her life and just felt like, wow, this is a person who is truly using every moment of her life in the service of her fellow human beings. So I'm really moved by her example. So one more bit before we start talking about the book is, Bergen, I'm wondering if you could kind of lay some groundwork for us and talk a little bit about certain terms that we'll be referring to, because Dr. Estes is a Jungian psychologist, and we'll be talking about archetypes and a little bit possibly about the collective unconscious. So I'm just wondering if you could acquaint us with some of those terms before we start. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And and I do want to add that I just, I mean, I got goosebumps as you were reading her bio. Oh, I, she's just such an extraordinary human being. And mm-hmm. I feel like I just feel so safe with her reading her book because mm-hmm. you realize like that she's seen basically the worst that humanity has to offer and brought so much love and compassion to, you know, the darkest shadows of of um, the human experience. And I'm like, well, if, if she can handle all of this, then she can probably handle my stuff, you know, and <laughs> yeah. if what she teaches can apply to these very extreme, you know, circumstances that they can be helpful to me and mine. And yeah, I just I love her. She's a joy to read and a joy to listen to. If you do any for audiobooks, she just has the most soothing, like poetic way of speaking. And it's really beautiful. Um, Yeah, so let's talk about Jungian psychology just a little bit. Um, Jungian psychology was developed by a man named Carl Jung, uh, Jung, who he studied under under Freud, actually, and then kind of took Freud's work in a in a new direction, opened up a new world for psychology. Um, Jungian therapy uh, is sometimes called Jungian analysis and is an in-depth analytical form of talk therapy designed to bring together the conscious and the unconscious parts of the mind to help a person feel balanced and whole. So just kind of like what we've been talking about earlier, where there's this intellectual work that happens up in our unconscious world or in our conscious world above ground. And Jungian psychology wants us to work with these unconscious parts and bring them to the conscious parts of ourselves. Um, And one of the tools they use for doing that um, are archetypes. So the definition of an archetype is an image or a symbol that's used in myths and stories to help us understand our experience as human beings. Um, archetypes are especially helpful in navigating the inner world. They give us images and symbols to help us understand the unconscious parts of uh, ourselves that affect the way we view um, both ourselves and the world. So just to give some examples of archetypes that um, people might be familiar with. So the hero, for example, um, is a very common archetype, especially in Western um, myths and stories and movies and books and the inner child is one that I think is kind of becoming a buzzword. You know, we're probably hearing that more now than we used to. Uh, that's another archetype that 
really describes this part of ourselves, like the wounded maiden that I talked about a little bit earlier that might be needing some of our attention, this part of ourselves that if it gets wounded when it's young can kind of stay down there and feel and, and feel uh, sad and, and need, you know, our love and help. The inner critic is one that I think people are probably familiar with. It's also known as the saboteur, that kind mm-hmm. of inner voice. That's like, uh, like the, that's like, you said that stupid thing at lunch with Amy and like, <laughs> <laughs> and kind of, or, or you should have done this or like you need to you're not skinny enough or you're you're not smart enough you're not working hard enough um you really messed that up you know that in that inner voice that's also an archetype so all of the archetypes that can be explored live inside of us right they're parts of us um which is why when we see them in a movie or read them read about them in the story we can feel so resonant with them and they those stories become so captivating so the best stories are the ones that really make these inner archetypes that are um have this kind of universal resonance uh so captivating and women who run with the wolves is an exploration in one particular archetype which is the wild woman she uses lots of archetypes but the wild woman is kind of the common thread that she's exploring throughout the story and we'll talk a little bit more about her characteristics um mm-hmm. later on yeah mm-hmm. so one question I have oh and I I should say too one thing that I got from reading and then I did listen to her on audible too is she says like the wild woman correct me if I'm wrong Brigan, but the wild woman she's referring to like woman in a natural state right that's what she means by wild it doesn't necessarily mean like out of control or like like has lost their senses. In fact, it's like, a, it's just a, a flowering of the senses in their natural state, right? So in that yeah. term of the word wild, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Which is why she uses the, um, also the symbol of the wolf, which yeah. again, she uses as an, it's kind of an archetype of the archetype, a mm. symbol of the archetype of wild woman that, that wolves are very, connected to their instincts they're mm. yeah very connected to the natural world they understand their place in it and are very you know deeply connected to the cycle of life and they understand mm. you know what it is they're here to do and I love that about um, her book too is the connection with wild woman to the wolves and I think you're right like we th- and I you know I think this happens a lot actually with words used to describe women is words mm-hmm. that at, for for one time and place where women had maybe more of their sovereignty intact, the words mean something really powerful and something really beautiful, like a witch, right? Mm. Or a wild, like or wild or witch, and they become pejoratives in a patriarchal, you know, mm. context. Like the word wild or the word witch then become ways that we turn women into pariahs when they're in their power, right? Mm-hmm. So I love that she kind of reclaims the word wild as being, you know, really in your element, connected to your nature and your instinct and, and intuition. Yeah. Hmm. Beautiful. Okay. One other quick thing about archetypes before we go to collective unconscious is, so my understanding of archetypes is that they're like pretty universal for human beings, right? And they might have different manifestations in different cultures, but that like you just listed the hero, the inner child, but almost every culture has each of those archetypes. Is that right? Yeah. So I think 
there are archetypes that are very um, tied to your particular culture. And then there are like archetypes that are more universal. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a mixture of both. Um, yeah, that there's archetypes that are universal that show up, you know, and manifest in different ways, depending on your culture and its traditions and stories. So like a warrior archetype, for example, we have that archetype all across, you know, all across different cultures. Like you said, inner child, the great mother archetype or the goddess archetype is, is pretty universal. Um, yeah. And it just kind of has different attributes and characteristics and manifestations depending on the cultural context that those archetypes are kind of coming up out of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The collective unconscious is essentially a way to describe the culturally shared archetypes and stories. So American Western culture has a very distinct collective unconscious. Um, and for a long time, it's been a, a collective unconscious that was mostly focused on men and um, and maleness. And it was kind of, you know, had this patriarchal flavor to it right um like the hero's journey is a story that uh is very masculine focused and it's one that runs through basically all of our western stories right all of the the books that are written in our culture and the movies that are made and the stories that are told even in music and art and other things the hero has been well established as an archetype and his story is one that we find um, as a thread throughout all of Western culture. So for us in, um, you know, in American Western culture, many of our stories are rooted in Greek and Roman mythology. So if you start following those archetypes down, you'll find their roots there. And there are just different levels of the collective unconscious, right? There's kind of the more superficial archetypes that we see a lot. And then there's kind of deeper meanings and deeper symbols that become more and more universal as you go down, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That does make sense. Yeah, definitely. Like reading the Odyssey, you're like, oh, yeah, this is like spawned a huge majority of of the stories that we have just in different forms in western culture for sure totally like every marvel movie or dc movie that's ever been made every superhero movie is essentially just another greek or roman story right like yeah it's the hero's journey in some new flashy costume yeah yeah (laughs) yeah true and so masculine like you said in our in our tradition so masculine and as you're describing that, you know, how the Western world has those specifically patriarchal and and very male archetypes. I just reflected again, as I have before, about what it feels like to be a little girl growing up in a patriarchal society and how it's really impossible to understand and to estimate the impact that it has on a girl to move through a world where the stories she hears her whole life about like how the world was created and what life means. And when those are primarily like almost a hundred percent really about, you know, with male characters, exclusively male characters, and especially a creation story that only features men, there's literally no goddess or mother for a creation at all. It doesn't even make sense biologically. And then just how it feels as a girl. And then like, Another human question is like, what brought death in, into the world? It's like, oh, now a woman shows up. The one woman character is the one who brings death. And I'll just, I mean, just thinking about me as 
a kid growing up and I've written about this, but like my heroes and truly like the, the heroes that I admired in my heart, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, David, Daniel, Jesus, of course, and Peter and John. And, and then we have Book of Mormon characters that some listeners won't have heard of, but Nephi, Enos, Alma, Helaman, Captain Moroni. And then in the secular world, there's Bach and Mozart, because I was a musician, Beethoven, Chopin, Rachmaninoff, and then Shakespeare. I mean, and also, like, even as I grew up and, like, became aware of the the plight of people all over the world in, in poverty and injustices, but then my heroes, and they should be, I'm, I'm proud to call Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. my heroes, but all the stories I knew were about men, all of them. And so I, I do feel, wow, I, I have been a little bitter sometimes. And if there are some cultures where they, and I know there are actually, when I read, you know, stories, other cultures, creation stories, other mythologies, and they see like, whoa, they get to have women in their stories. I I just feel like I did not have really any wise women in the form of an archetype or a real human being to lead me on my path. I've had to fight every step of the way on my own. And I would like my kids, to, you know, all my kids, my daughters and my son to have stories and myths in their lives, but to have them populated you know, their pantheon of gods and goddesses and archetypes to have not just men, but women and people of all genders, um, not just representing men. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and there's something really beautiful about finding yourself in the image of a goddess or some other, um, you know, historical character that inspires you. Uh, and there's also, you know, there's all, there's non-binary myths and archetypes. There's also a lot of cautionary tales about, you know, the two different parts of like the yin and yang or the masculine and feminine and how, if one isn't in their proper place, that it causes this imbalance and, mm. And I, I think that's exactly those kinds of myths and stories are describing exactly what it looks like for us to be living in a patriarchal world where um, not just women, but everyone is harmed when mm-hmm. when things are out of balance that way, when the two parts are not brought together. Yeah. And I agree. All, all my heroes were men as well. I've ugh, I feel strongly that we really underestimate the way that the stories um, and myths and characters that we see growing up really reinforce the supremacy of men and especially white, you know, heteronormative, heterosexual, cisgendered men, um, and not just men, but also things that we associate with the masculine and the ways that that undermines women and other people on the spectrum, uh, their confidence in themselves and their place in the world. And just as kind of a, this is kind of a side kind of note, maybe a little tangent, but I recently learned that a more accurate translation for the first word in Genesis, if we're talking about that myth of Adam and Eve, that story at the beginning of the Bible, um, that the real translation isn't in the, the beginning, in the beginning, but it's in a beginning. Hmm. And it really triggered this thought for me that maybe this origin story of Adam and Eve was not really meant to be a story about like the actual creation of the world, the beginning of the world itself, but maybe a a myth about the birth of patriarchy. 
Mm, that this is where patriarchy for this particular culture was born. And this is the myth we're going to tell about it, right? And like you said, Mm -hmm. it's this story of paradise being lost because a woman made a mistake because she sinned or messed up or, and, and then from that started to flow this whole, you know, uh, this whole pantheon and culture of oppression, right? For Mm -hmm. women. And I think that's just, anyways, I think it's really interesting. Like you said, there's a lot of other myths and stories about the beginning of the world that don't include a woman betraying paradise or, um, betraying humanity with her weakness right and I just anyway so perhaps uh we can as we begin to realize that you know these sacred texts and these myths and stories that inform our cultural view um that they're not so much historical stories and that can free us to really work with the archetypes and the symbols and the stories um because we all contain all the archetypes And each of the stories and the characters and their experiences can become like a mirror showing us parts of our culture or parts of ourselves that we haven't confronted, that we haven't really dealt with and that need our attention and healing because they have implications in the real world. They have implications uh, in our everyday lives and they affect the wellness, the well-being of our planet and of humanity. And archetypes are own, are just different manifestations of the parts of ourselves that we can learn how to be with and reintegrate in more healthy ways. Um, yeah, and it doesn't, it, regardless of our gender, all these archetypes are a part of us, right? And learning how to work with them helps us to be more whole. So the book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, is sometimes called like a feminist Bible. So because it deals specifically with female archetypes that in our particular culture and our time have been denigrated and demonized and that we've disassociated from. And so it really speaks to the parts of ourselves that we lose touch with when we're surviving a patriarchal world. Um, And our own internalized kind of patriarchal landscape is being navigated by Clarissa Pinkola Estes in this book. So The format of the book is set up as a series of stories. So each chapter focuses on a different myth or story that she's curated over her time um, exploring myths and stories, both from her childhood and then in her professional life. And so it's kind of similar to the Bible in that way, that it has like a series of stories that kind of feel almost like a sacred text, but it's in this feminine language that is really... Mm -hmm. um, at least for me, was very, uh, what's the word, like disorienting at first. I was like, oh, <laughs> like it took me a while to kind of get used to thinking of things in this other paradigm. And then at the at the end of each story, Essa shares her analysis and her commentary on the archetypes and the meaning of the story from her perspective. So she kind of helps you break down um, the symbols and how it might apply to you as a, particularly she's focusing on women living in a patriarchal Um, world so yeah like I said it takes time to get used to both her language and to kind of the feminine um, paradigm that she uses to look at stories and then also the the Jungian style of analysis um, and language takes some time it took me an entire year to read the book (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I would read a story and I would like sit with it and really be with it and dig into it and then like a month later would read the next story you know 
and it feels like a sacred text in that way that when you open it, it always feels like it's exactly the story you need for that moment. You know, it's got that kind of mythical, uh, mystical, spiritual quality to it that it feels like it speaks to what you're experiencing in the moment. Um, And I think um, just to reiterate, one of the reasons why this text is so important is it gives women orientation in a patriarchal world. It gives them a sense of place help them to understand like, where, where am I in this narrative? And it gives voice to what it's like for a woman to survive a patriarchal um, experience in a female body as someone identified as a woman. Um, And it gives explanation in an archetypal form of why things might be feeling off, why you might be feeling anxious and depressed and exhausted and constantly hustling and on this like hamster wheel of, you know, always hustling for your sense of worth. And it also gives a template on how to recover what has been lost and how to begin reclaiming your sovereignty and coming home to yourself and living a more soulful life, showing up more authentically um, in the world instead of always looking externally for what your place is, letting that come from within you and then showing up with your own unique gifts like the way, you know, the way she so beautifully does in her life showing up, mm-hmm. she's showing up to all these places where patriarchy and other other intersections of oppression are harming people. And she brings these beautiful, soulful, you know, sovereign, um, uniquely sacred feminine gifts um, to the world, because that's what the world needs, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if enough of us were doing that, we could really allow these old systems that are harming us to to break down and for mm-hmm. something new to be born out of it but the the birth has to come from within ourselves otherwise we're mm-hmm. only going to reference what already is and what already mm-hmm. is 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 patriarchal and it's racist and it's homophobic and it's like all these things right that mm-hmm. are hurting us and we've got to reference something else we've got to reference the truth of who we are as human and both fully human and divine people and reference something within ourselves that is bigger and more authentic and more soulful and more compassionate and more loving than the world that we've created with this kind of overlay of so much fear and disconnection and hierarchy and yeah yep it's mm, amazing okay there there i think there's one more well did we talk about wild woman already do you want to just share this Yeah, I can share this quote about wild women to help kind of give some context. So like I said earlier, the main thread throughout the book is the archetype of the wild woman. And um, I'm going to just share a quote that of um, Estes and how she describes the wild woman. And again, this is about kind of listening deeper than just our intellect and up in our heads. And the way she speaks, at least for me, really brings me down into that place, down in my heart, down in my gut. So maybe as I'm reading it, practice doing that of like coming out of your head, because it sometimes it just doesn't make sense in your head. You're like, I don't know how to wrap my mind around what she's saying. But something about what she's saying is coming alive in a deeper part of me is awakening this deeper knowing. And that's really the whole point, right? So if you want to try and practice that while we read it, um, 
it's a good little practice in listening to that inner voice. So this is um, Clarissa speaking here. She says, the comprehension of this wild woman nature is not a religion, but a practice. It is a psychology in its truest sense. Psyche, so she's breaking down the word psychology here. Psyche means soul. Ology or logos is knowing. So psychology means knowing of the soul. And the wild woman she's saying here, right, is psychology in its truest sense is a knowing of the soul. Without her, women are without ears to hear her soul talk or to register the chiming of her own inner rhythms. Without her, women's inner eyes are closed by some shadowy hand, and large parts of their days are spent in wishful thinking. Without her, women lose the sureness of their soul footing. Without her, they forget why they are here. They hold on when they would best hold out. Without her, they take too much or too little or nothing at all. Without her, they are silent when they are in fact on fire. She is their regulator. She is their soulful heart, the same as the human heart that regulates the body. Hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, my favorite phrase is, without her, they are silent when they are in fact on fire. I feel that in my bones so deeply that so many of the women in my life have been taught to be, um, as my teacher Sarah Durham says, pretty pleasing and polite, mm -hmm. to stay quiet and small um, in that maiden kind of smallness, right? Mm-hmm. But in fact, we're all on fire. Our lives are on fire. Things are not well. Things are not right. And um, we are holding back with so much fear because there's a lot at stake when we speak up mm -hmm. in a patriarchal world. It is dangerous to speak up and to be our authentic selves. And if we can reclaim this wild woman, it might give us the courage to not be silent when, we're, when the world is on fire, when we're on fire, when our communities are really on fire right mm -hmm. when our own um, souls are on fire mm -hmm. yeah Whew. good job yeah good job cpe we love you <laughs> we love you <laughs> thank, that was thank goddess for her in the right. world speaking those truths with such like beautiful like eloquency it's so great yeah 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 she is she is a poet and um yeah speaking so powerfully beautiful Okay, well, let's, we're going to highlight a couple of her stories from the book. It is a giant book. Like you said, Bergen, it's it so takes fat. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fat. <laughs> it is. It is. And it is like a Bible in that way. I did feel like it was scripture too, because it's, yeah, I mean, it's just full of metaphor. So you do have to do the work to sit with it and think, what is, what am I trying to learn here? What do I have to learn from this story? So we're going to start with chapter two is the beginner initiation and it's the story of Bluebeard. So I'll read, I mean, this is a, a because it's an archetype and it, it, it um, appears in different cultures, but Dr. Estes is telling it the way she learned it from her aunt who is from the heartland of Europe. And so I'm just going to read her words in telling this version of the story. 
A giant man named Bluebeard with an eye for women once courted three sisters at the same time. They were frightened of his indigo-colored beard, so at first when he called at their house, they hid. But he persisted and then invited them on an outing in the forest along with their mother. He brought horses for them to ride and fancy food and told them enchanting stories, so the sisters began to think he wasn't so bad. At the end of the day, they were all chatting about how fun it had been, but then the older two sisters' suspicions and fears returned, and they vowed not to see Bluebeard again. But the youngest sister thought if a man could be that charming, then perhaps he was not so bad. The more she talked to herself, the less awful he seemed. So he asked the youngest sister to marry him, and she said yes, because he seemed like a very elegant man. So they went to live in his castle in the woods. One day, Bluebeard told his young wife that he was going away for a day, so she could invite her sisters over and explore the whole castle if she wanted. He handed her a ring with hundreds of keys and told her to use all of them except the tiniest key with the scrolls on top. And at this part, I was like, oh, it's Beauty and the Beast, like, totally. except the West Wing, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly like, right. Yep. <laughs> Suddenly, I want to go to the West Wing. There's <laughs> 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 this, like, ominous, oh, no. So, but back to Estes. So she said, so he left, and the sisters opened every single door with every single key, but couldn't find a door that fit the tiniest key. Then, down deep in the cellar, they saw a little door mysteriously closing, and when they tried to open it back up, it was locked. Of course, they tried the tiny little key with the scrolls, and voila! It opened into a room so dark they needed to light a candle. So a candle was lit and held into the room, and all three women screamed at once, for in the room was a mire of blood, and the blackened bones of corpses were flung about, and skulls were stacked in corners like pyramids of apples. They panicked, and then the wife looked down at the key and saw that it was dripping with blood. She put it in her pocket. It bled and bled until her dress was stained with blood down to the hem. She scrubbed it with everything she could think of. She burned it. Nothing would stop the bleeding. So she hid it in her wardrobe, and it bled and bled all over her clothes, a flood of blood in the wardrobe. Her husband came home and demanded the ring of keys, and immediately noticed that the tiny one was missing, and knew his wife had betrayed him. He found the key in her wardrobe. Now it's your turn, my lady, he screamed and dragged her down the hall into the tiny cellar until they were before the terrible door. Bluebeard merely looked at the door with his fiery eyes and the door opened for him. There lay the skeletons of all his previous wives. He's about, okay, and so there I was like, no! Like, I didn't know that. <laughs> like, I didn't, <laughs> I couldn't tell that that was what, where that was going, that it was his previous wives. Yikes. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase so a little much. bit to condense. I love that you condense. have this organic experience with it where you get to the that part and you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a little kid. Yeah. I really did not know what this story was, was about. So it's I'm like, really <gasps> intense. Yeah, it's really Yeah, intense. it's super intense. Yeah. And the blood. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So he's about to behead her, but she begs for 15 minutes so she can go prepare for death. 
and make peace with God, and he relents and lets her go. So she sends her sisters up to the ramparts of the castle and says, Sisters, do you see our brothers coming? And she calls this again and again, but they say, No, I don't see anybody. No one's coming to help. But then, so finally, they hear like these women are like huddled together at the top of the castle and they hear Bluebeard thundering up the stairs and they can hear like stones falling because he's thundering so heavily on the stairs. He's coming to kill his wife, but in the nick of time, the brothers do arrive. They storm the castle on their horses and they find Bluebeard. And then it says, quote, striking and slashing, cutting and whipping, beating Bluebeard down to the ground, beating him at last and leaving for the buzzards his blood and gristle. Yeah, this is so good. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Yeah, it's a good story. Okay, but then, okay. So and it's grisly, right? It's, yeah, it's bloody and ugh. gory. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, yeah, it's gross. Okay, so interpret for us, Bernie, because <laughs> I thought like some of this maybe I get, and some of it, some of it maybe I'm missing. So tell us what it means. Well, I so Clarissa Pingola Estes gives such a beautiful analysis of the story. So please take the time to go read her analysis. So I'll just share how it feels for me personally, which is really the beauty of stories like this and archetypes mm-hmm. is that you are the meaning maker. Mm. Clarissa gives her analysis, but the the real meaning comes when you see your own life, your own self reflected in the story. So I'm just going to share mine. And I hope nobody, nobody needs to take this on as their interpretation, right? You read the story and see what how it feels for you. And I think there's lots of different levels that we can interpret it on right you can interpret it as kind of an a very kind of overarching story and to me I see Bluebeard as a personification or an archetype of the patriarchy itself Mm. the character of Bluebeard is this archetypal image of patriarchy and it describes really well the way it felt for me to wake up to the fact that I was living in one right Mm. like And this kind of, there's this, at the very beginning, the instinct of this maiden is like, hey, something's not quite right with this guy. He's got this weird blue beard and he kind of creeps me out. But then she kind of does this like internal gaslighting and like allows him to court her. And she kind of ignores that first inkling she has that maybe he's not safe. And then she gets into this um, marriage with him and finds the skeletons in the closet, so to speak, right? Or this kind of violence down in the cellar. And I, to me, this is patriarchy on a large scale. It's like we, at first, we're like, well, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't quite right. But gosh, like the promises of all this prosperity of, you know, and all the just, I don't know, all the shiny things I think sometimes that like patriarchy offers us. It's like, we'll, we'll protect you and keep you safe and give you, um, you'll, you'll have everything you could have ever want, right? Mm -hmm. She's living in a castle, he's got all this money and, and we put ourselves there. And then we realize like something is really, really wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And often we don't want to go down and see what's really wrong. Um, So, yeah, for me, it felt like I spent a lot of my life, especially growing up in a very patriarchal um, faith tradition, just kind of like if you'll just if you just come and like have children and get married and be a mom, like everything will be great. Everything will just be fine. 
And then I did all the things that I was told to do. And instead of being fine, I felt really terrified and lonely and empty and numb and found all these skeletons in the closet and went, holy crap, right? So that was my experience of finding like these dead bodies in the basement going, I was promised happiness and fulfillment and protection and prosperity if I would just kind of ignore this inkling that something wasn't quite right. If I just set that aside, I could have all these promises, I could be protected. And instead, I felt really, really betrayed. And when we look at patriarchy as like a larger system, which it takes a lot of our deepest courage to do, and face the truth of how inherently violent the ideology of patriarchy is, these systems are built on violence. You know, violence to women, violence to indigenous people, violence to black people, violence to queer people and poor people and the aged and the disabled, right? But this whole system we've built on this ideology that there's one one thing um, being men and the masculine is better than everything else and that everything else should be sacrificed to that, right? Um, And we see that so... So... um, viscerally displayed in American history, right? That we felt like we could come here and just take the land from indigenous people at great cost to their lives and their ways of being, right? And their traditions, and then bring um, African people here and enslave them and create this whole system built on the backs of, you know, enslavement. Um, And then all these other added oppressions with women doing all this unpaid, unrecognized care work and labor and emotional labor in the home. Um, And it's predominantly women who do care work in, in industries as well, like, you know, school teachers and nurses and all that stuff. And none of it is paid well and none of it is really recognized. Uh, And we're doing all this like, you know, on the, And this whole system, this whole financial system and cultural system and government system is based on all of this violence happening at the bottom, right? And props up a very, very few people at the top. Um, Yeah, and I just, I love the story that like these older sisters are like, hey, let's explore what's in all these doors, right? Let's open up all the doors. So at first she's opening up all these doors and she just sees more riches. And for me, it Mm. feels like, oh, look, you could be skinny. Like, oh, look, you could be a CEO. Like, oh, look, you could, you know, write a book or be a PhD and like all these things. And I'm like opening all the doors. And then the last key, and it just takes so much courage to open that last door and to really look and see that underneath it is really something scary, something um, terrifying, something violent. Um, and I think it's a story that brings to the surface, you know, that one uh, another really nefarious aspect of patriarchy, and that's something we brought up earlier, which is the infantilization of women, right? That we just want to keep women up here, up in the upper chambers where everything looks nice. And not allow women to really grow up and see that there is harm happening in the world that we can do something about, right? And the young maiden initially, Ev's being wary of Bluebeard, but her instincts are underdeveloped at this point in her life. And so she's betrayed by her own naivete that a patriarchy 
um, that the system will keep her safe, that if she just complies and plays along, that she'll get the promised, you know, rewards of doing that. But the patriarchy really wants to keep women in this state of immaturity and maidenhood, right? And when I say the patriarchy, I don't mean men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, right. like, Bluebeard allows us to have it be like this archetypal symbol of this system and ideology that's not a particular man or a group of men, right? Right. We're all complicit in the system in our own ways, but um, it's not men themselves. And it, this, you know, go back, going back to this infantilization of women, this obsession we have with women looking and behaving young, again, that pretty pleasing and polite sentiment allows patriarchal ideologies to continue exploiting and uh, continue the violence because an infantilized woman doesn't stand up to the power and use her voice and challenge the harmful structure. She doesn't look at the proverbial skeletons in the closet and say, this isn't right. Um, This is not worth the cost to my own soul or to whoever else is and to whoever else is being harmed. And I think this is especially a problem in a benevolent patriarchy where kind of the more insidious (laughs) overt ways that patriarchy is violent is softened by the idea that, women are weak and sensitive and soft and they need the protection of the leadership to survive or the protection of men to survive. And the problem is, is that even a benevolent patriarchy is still rooted in sexism and misogyny Mm -hmm. um, and other kinds of, you know, um, oppression and, and violence towards other marginal groups, marginalized groups. And the thing is, is that women, the thing this is what happens is that the very thing that women need to be protected from is the thing that says it's going to protect them. Right. And in the story, it's really beautifully illustrated that like Bluebeard says, you'll be safe and have everything you need inside the house. But the thing that she needs to be protected from is Bluebeard himself. Um, And he's promising all this providing and protection and prosperity in exchange for her remaining immature and in her naivete. But it's, it's really him that's doing the violence. Right. So Clarissa Bingal Estes has this quote in her analysis that says, this fact is one of the central truths. The youngest sister in the tale must acknowledge that all, and that all women must acknowledge that from within and without, there is a force which will act in opposition to the instincts of the natural self and that the malignant force is what it is. Though we might have mercy upon it, our first actions must be to recognize it, to protect ourselves from its devastations and ultimately deprive it of its energy. So often I think we do have that instinct to like want to have mercy on the system because, well, it's not their fault that this happened, right? But what we need to do is recognize this is really harmful. Mm -hmm. This is hurting me and it's hurting everyone and especially the most vulnerable And I need to protect myself so I can rise in my maturity and start showing up for um, the work that needs to be done to make things better. So there's often a part of us that might want to stay naive to what's really happening. Maybe we're a little insulated by our own intersections of privilege, right? We don't really want to look at it because we know how it will change everything if we really face the truth. The place where we used to feel safe isn't going to feel safe anymore. And we're really going to have to find that safety within ourselves. Um, However, there's also that wild instinctive part of ourselves that's represented by those older sisters and that knows something is wrong and calls us to wake up to reality and calls us to do that maturing that we can handle it 
if we'll rise up in ourselves and that we can really heal and begin ending the harm that's happening to ourselves and to others. So then this last quote um, from Esso saying, whatever dilemma a woman finds herself in, the voices of the older sisters in her psyche continue to urge her to consciousness and to be wise in her choices. And they represent those voices in the back of our own minds that whisper the truths that a woman may wish to avoid for they end her fantasy of paradise found. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I, okay. <laughs> that was a lot. So just tell me, tell me your reaction to my, my, um, spewing of excitement about this story. <laughs> <laughs> it was a brilliant spewing of excitement. Mm. I loved it. That was such great analysis. Um, one thing that I'm going to take away from this, um, as you know, all through the podcast, I, I always do try to specify that this, like you said, this doesn't mean that men are bluebeard. You know what I mean? But bluebeard represents the system. And so as I was as, as you said that, I thought, okay, yeah, w when have I encountered this phenomenon with it where someone is um, enacting the system of patriarchy in an oppressive way and saying, you may not look in the basement, you know, and or dragging me to be, you know, metaphorically murdered or in some way because I've looked in the basement because I've broken the rules and I thought oh yeah okay I can think of and I thought of a person that is actually a really wonderful person but in that instant the the thing that this person evoked and kind of like brought into the relationship dynamic that thing was bluebeard it wasn't the person that was bluebeard but it was the the forbidding of questioning, that was Bluebeard. And then I thought of another person who's a woman totally. who also did that to me. You know what I mean? Like, don't you dare look in that closet. How dare you question the system? And now I, you know, I will murder the relationship and cut you off because you've asked questions. You went where you weren't supposed to go. Um, and that woman again, it kind of evoked the Bluebeard archetype and brought it in to um into play so it wasn't her she also or it wasn't him that first person i said it was just there are these systems and so to get a character that represents i just want to emphasize what you said that character doesn't represent men it doesn't represent any one person although you could make a case that some men actually do do it consciously if you think of you know sexual pred predators or whatever like there are some cases where it is pretty deliberate but most of the people we encounter anybody I know personally isn't doing it on purpose but they're accidentally playing into these ancient 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 systems so I thought like yeah next time this happens I'm going to say that thing that just happened is bluebeard and I'm going to murder that sometimes it's in my own mind yep. sometimes the bluebeard is, is a you. thought I have on myself yep. right that says like, don't do that. That's dangerous. Or like, who are you to do that? Or just be quiet. Be what was it? Pretty pleasing and polite. Mm -hmm. And so that helps me to have this like symbol that I can stab in the heart with my sword. And I'm not stabbing me in the heart with a sword. I'm just like, oh, there he is. There's Bluebeard. And it can take any form. And it's just bringing that system into play. So that's one thing I thought of. Totally. But that, the analysis you provided, Bergen, was like mind blowing. It was awesome. <laughs> serious so, it was so good thank you no thank you so much I just I love 
I love these archetypal stories. And like I said, it's just my, it's like a playground for me being in these like unconscious Mm. kind of archetypal places. Um, And I know sometimes like it feels really hard again to like wrap your mind around it, but the way you just described that makes, makes it really clear. So I, I want to add to that, that the reason why archetypal, archetypes can be so helpful is they help us do this differentiation that you're talking about instead Mm -hmm. of villainizing other human beings Mm -hmm. we can say no something about this situation triggered this bluebeard energy for them this Mm -hmm. kind of fearful wanting to control things wanting to manipulate wanting to um hide and keep things under wraps And like you said, we all have that part of us that's like, how dare you? How dare Mm -hmm. you speak against this, right? And it Mm -hmm. rises up inside of us because it gets triggered unconsciously most of the time, like you said. Mm -hmm. Um, And being able to identify it with an archetype instead of with that person or with ourselves so intimately, right, helps us to like have enough distance from it to, to do the healing that we might need to do there. Right. Right. Either in the relationship or just within our own selves. Mm -hmm. Um, We all have this kind of archetypal part of us. And I I do want to say, like, obviously in the story, Bluebeard gets killed. Right. He gets killed off. But we don't really kill off parts of our consciousness or our unconsciousness. What happens instead is that we we confront them. We um, we do whatever healing needs to happen. And then we repurpose them they get Mm. kind of um, composted even like if you think about really Mm. what death is 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 a a reconfiguration of the matter that we used to be Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. you might have this part of us that's this bluebeard character that's like don't look at the scary things down in the basement don't you dare don't you dare question that something up here isn't quite right right and Mm. we might say to that part of ourselves thank you so much for trying to protect me from this hard thing, but I'm ready to look at it now. I'm rising up Mm. in my maturity. I'm ready to see what is down in the cave, in the basement, Mm. in the closet. Mm -hmm. Um, And thank you for protecting me until I was ready to see. And then allow that bluebeard to kind of, you know, whatever. He can like turn into a Mm -hmm. pillar of salt and become something else later Mm -hmm. that we need. But like, it doesn't have, we don't have to be, Um, I think the most uh, powerful way we can be with these parts of ourselves, even the ones that feel scary is to say, thank Mm. you. And to say, Mm. you've played an important role. You've kept me safe. Like, thank you for that. But I think often when this part, this kind of part of ourselves that's um, personified in the archetype of Bluebeard is usually connected to some part of us that's really wounded. And when someone else is personifying this and kind of getting consumed by the energy of the bluebeard, it's because they've got some unresolved wound. And that doesn't mean that we, that we don't hold people accountable for their behavior. It just means we acknowledge that this isn't the best of who this person is. Mm -hmm. And I can hold them to account and say that behavior is not acceptable without making it about their humanity or about mm-hmm. their worth or their value as a human. And I, I, another way I think this, this story 
really comes into reality for women, especially is when they get themselves into abusive relationships where the man is so charming, but something's not quite right, but, but he's so charming and he has all these great qualities and the sex is great. And he's like very like, um, charismatic and has this kind of bad boy thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we get into these relationships and realize that they're so volatile. And a lot of that is because we have this wounded inner maiden that hasn't learned how to trust herself and her intuition. And then these men are so wounded and have this kind of violent outcropping from that wound. Right. And that's not to say that it's a woman's fault right? Our whole culture right. sets women up to not be safe, right. to not be safe in these situations, to not trust themselves and listen to themselves. And so that's not a woman's fault that when someone else is being abusive mm -hmm. um, and we can hold those men accountable and say, this is, I, I'm drawing a line and a boundary and I'm no longer going to be in relationship with you because this is unsafe. And I'm calling you to account to deal with this wound that is that is just that you are using to justify your violent behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we want to do with the patriarchy as a whole is not to say anyone who's ever perpetuated a patriarchal idea is evil and bad, but that this is not in alignment with your true self, with your true humanity, mm -hmm. and you need to be held to account so that this can get better. And if we don't yeah. ever hold it to account, it just festers and then rematerializes into another kind of violence, right? Mm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I see, and that's why to me, the work of the inner work of, of internalized patriarchy is so essential because mm -hmm. if we're only working at the surface, we're never getting down to the root of why we keep manifesting these different, you know, energies or archetypes. Um, they'll just put on a different mask and come up right. in a different way right over and over and, and over until we really really confront them and heal yeah yes absolutely and i'm thinking too even like doing that work on a personal level is essential for each individual but then like we said at the beginning that's what changes society too because even if i'm thinking like in legislation like policy that is that restricts women's rights it doesn't, it's not like it, ha like policy, quote unquote, has a mind or a consciousness of its own. It's individual human beings in a room enacting policy, especially, you know, in a democracy, there's theoretically people can vote. Right. Right. And, and also even if those leaders were educated, if those leaders had dismantled patriarchy within their own minds, then the individual people who are making those choices wouldn't make choices that limited women. So yep. the individual work is, is essential. Right. For all the reasons. Things like the abortion, the issue of yep. abortion never gets resolved. Yep. Because we're only working at the surface. Yep. We never really get down to why is it that women feel so disempowered in having children in this world? Yep. Why is it that women aren't supported? Why don't we trust women to make these choices for themselves? And mm -hmm. those are the deeper questions, the skeletons in the closet that we don't want to look at. We don't want to yep. look at why is it that we don't trust women to make this choice right. for themselves? We just right. want to argue about like the stuff up here on the surface, up in the upper parts of the castle. Right. And, 
and we just keep going around and around and around in circles, right? And yeah. um, we and there's so many issues like that that we are just always just up here in the superficial, jostling back and forth, and never really getting down to the root of why we're still having this conversation. Absolutely, women need to trust themselves, and then and men need to trust women men need to allow women (laughs) to make these decisions yep right right so we're just going to summarize the story of vasilisa the wise it's a it's such a good story so again i just please read it please read the story itself because i'm sure my uh my summary isn't as good as what uh, clarissa pingola estes writes but so the story of Vasilisa actually has a lot of similarity to me um, of the Cinderella story, right? Mm-hmm. So again, kind of like the Beauty and the Beast showing up in the Bluebeard story, that moment where you're like, oh, I recognize this kind of archetypal thing that's happening. Um, many of these stories have that kind of overlap and you know, you'll know you recognize different parts of the archetypes in this in other stories. So Vasilisa's got a little Cinderella vibe. She has a mother who is ill and is dying. And as the mother is on her deathbed, she gives the gift of a doll, a small doll to Vasilisa. One that looks just like her, looks like Vasilisa, right? It's got a dress like Vasilisa's dress and hair and face like hers. And the mother says, this is my gift to you. um, And I'm going, and uh, you don't let anyone know that you have it, but keep it, keep it secret and safe for yourself. And the mother passes away and the father eventually after mourning remarries um, the stepmother, right? The the wicked stepmother is such a great archetype too, that we could have a whole conversation about, but we've got the stepmother and the two stepsisters who over time begin to treat Vasilisa poorly. They make her do all the, you know, all the work in the house and, and don't treat her as an equal in the household. And I think does the does the father die as well, or he leaves? Mm-hmm. And I can't remember mm-hmm. what happens to the father in the story. It's it's left my mind. But the father is absent as well, and so Vasilisa is kind of stuck with her stepmother and stepsisters who are mistreating her. And eventually, the stepmother becomes just so frustrated and um, annoyed with Vasilisa that she wants to get rid of her altogether because Vasilisa has stayed kind and um, throughout all of her mistreatment and she just can't stand it. So she decides to put out all the fires in the house and send Vasilisa out into the woods to Baba Yaga, who is an old witch crone character who lives in the woods and, um, the stepmother knows that anyone who goes to see Baba Yaga doesn't make it back, but she sends, so she's going to kind of has this plot to send Vasilisa out to Baba Yaga, um, knowing that she won't survive, um, but tells Vasilisa bring fire back because we have to light the fires in the house. All the fires have gone out. So Vasilisa, um, takes her doll in her pocket and goes out into the woods, which I think takes so much courage. It kind of has that shadow of the going down into the basement moment, right? Mm -hmm. Where she's having Mm -hmm. to kind of gird her loins to go out into the woods to meet this formidable character, Baba Yaga. Um, And so she goes 
out into the woods and is essentially led by the doll. So what she'll do is she'll put her hand in her pocket and ask the doll, like, which, which path should I take whenever she comes to a crossroads? And the doll, in her own kind of magic way, tells Vasilisa which way to go. Um, and eventually she makes it to Baba Yaga's hut. And Baba Yaga's hut is this, like, really scary place right it's got like a a fence around it with human skulls with fire green fire coming out of the skulls and the house itself is on chicken legs and um I don't like the knocker is made out of like human bones and like it's just a very Mm -hmm. scary thing and Baba Yaga rides in a cauldron and has this like stringy hair behind her head and Um, you know got like the quintessential like warded nose like total witch vibes right Mm -hmm. and she's this terrifying uh, again formidable character that comes out and asks Vasilisa like why are you here and Vasilisa again uses her doll to answer the question because she knows that every question and every task that Baba Yaga is going to give her is um, is a matter of life and death right so she asks the Baba Yaga asks her why she's here and she gives the answer that she's here for fire. So I'll just read a a little quote from this interaction. So Baba Yaga asked the girl, why are you here? And the girl trembled saying, grandmother, I come for fire. My house is cold. My people will die. I need fire. And Baba Yaga snapped. Oh yes. I know you and your people. Well, you useless child, you let the fire go out. That's an ill-advised thing to do. And besides, what makes you think I should give you the flame? And Vasilisa consults her doll and quickly replies, because I ask. Baba Yaga purred, you're lucky. That is the right answer. (laughs) Yeah, so I love this interaction um, between the two of them. So she goes into Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga lets her into the house and says she has to do these tasks in order to... um, be able to leave freely with Baba Yaga's fire to light her fires at home. And she gives her tasks of, of sorting. Um, I think we have them here. So she has, she has to sort um, like, I don't know. What is it? Seeds? Yeah. Like uh, poppy seeds. Yeah. Like tiny little, poppy tiny seeds. little poppy seeds from the dirt. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And usually Vasilisa will spend some time trying to sort through those things. And then eventually she falls asleep and her doll tells her, I'll I'll take care of it for you while you sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, So she does eventually finish all of the tasks, all three of the tasks that Baba Yaga gives her. And it's really her doll that finishes them in the night while Vasilisa is asleep. Um, And then Baba Yaga allows her to leave with the fire and she gives her one of the skulls off of the fence on a staff. So the skull is on the staff with this green fire in it and she takes um, the staff home and she relights the fire. The stepmothers and the stepsisters are very surprised to see her. Um, but over overnight, this skull in the house, um, it kind of hones in on the stepmother and the step uh, sisters who just can't survive being in being with this magical Baba Yaga fire and they all are gone. They vanish mm-hmm. because the I think they die, right? 
They, yeah, they get incinerated they by get the fire. Incinerated I think by they the like burn fire. up instantly. They yeah, burn up yeah. from the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the story of of Vasilisa. I, I would love to hear your your initial mm. feelings about it before I talk about mine, since I've already been talking a lot. <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's so great. Um. I it's there's such great stories. Again, I I thought the same thing. Like, oh, this is just Cinderella, but then. It was only the beginning scenario and then it departed from Cinderella once, you know, she gets sent out into the woods and with the doll and everything. And yeah, I love these stories. Again, it's it's like it's actually legitimately fun to read because it's a scary story. And um, but the main thing for me was that the doll and I just had read before I read this, I had read Glennon Doyle's Untamed, which we covered on a previous episode. And so that concept of, you know, Glennon Doyle talks about sinking into her inner knowing to answer questions, even, you know, when she's in a business meeting or anytime, really, and, and that it was very hard work at first to do meditation. She practiced meditation in her closet, but got better at just consulting her own soul, basically sinking to the state, deep place within herself to her intuition, and that that has always led her um, to good things, right? To things that have, have resulted in, in positive outcomes. And then it get, just gives her a lot of peace too. So that's what it was for me. Like anytime Vasilisa would, you know, reach into her pocket and feel the doll there, or touch the doll or consult the doll specifically on something and how different that is from, you know, in most religious traditions where you're consulting, um, an authority, like a different person, an external source for an answer. Like I've, I've referenced in Sarah Grimke's letters on the equality of the sexes, the pastor who said, you know, women need to consult their pastors when they have any questions. And this is like in direct refutation of that. It's no, like feel the doll in your pocket that your mom gave you or whatever the symbol is of your deep inner knowing consult that and that will lead you in the right direction so that was my big takeaway from Vasilisa one of them yeah I think that's such such an important one and like you said we're really trained to always like look outside of ourselves for the Mm -hmm. answers like we'll google something or ask an authority figure Um, I know a lot of women who feel like they've got to consult their husbands and right because they're trained Um, maybe through their families or their faith tradition to always look to, you know, male authority figures to get those answers. And this really is like this coming of age story for the maiden to Mm -hmm. leave her mother and father's house and to walk out into the woods on her own and really begin to trust herself. And and I Mm -hmm. think at least in my experience, it really felt that way to me. Yeah. Like I was leaving something that although it wasn't really working for me, it was safe and it was known in in the sense that like I understood what the world was inside the house, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And going out into the woods takes a lot of courage or into your own wilderness and to start listening to that inner wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage. And I see that happening for Vasilisa. She's coming into that like, mature feminine like I'm going to Mm -hmm. listen to my inner voice and trust this gift Mm -hmm. that's been given to me um I also just I love Baba Yaga as a character (laughs) 
so I want you to talk about Baba Yaga because I just <laughs> she's terrifying. She's terrifying, and I just love that she's this badass like female archetype because we just Mm -hmm. don't have very many of those and she's not beautiful and she's not skinny and she's not young and she's not pleasing and she's not like she is completely embodied in her kind of wild scary crone kind of energy and I just I'm so grateful to have an Mm -hmm. archetype like that and I want to be an old woman that just embodies Baba Yaga. Um, maybe not quite, maybe also with an integration of like the nice grandma that makes cookies too, but a little bit of that formidable crone, right? Hmm. We don't have a lot of that. Like it's like as women age, they just slowly disappear in a patriarchal culture. And yeah. Baba Yaga, it does not disappear. She takes up space, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Baba Yaga... Ha- Oh, oh, this is a quote from Clarissa Pinkola Estes about Baba Yaga. So she says, in this initiation drama, Baba Yaga is the instinctive nature in the guise of the witch. So she's, again, another incarnation of the wild woman in the guise of a witch. Like the word wild, the word witch has become, has come to be understood as a pejorative. But long ago, it was an appellation given to both old and young women healers. The word witch deriving from the word wit, meaning wise. So many are afraid of women's, quote unquote, women's power. For the old feminine attributes and forces are vast and they are formidable. It's understandable that the first time they come face to face with the old witch powers, both men and women take one anxious look and make tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I just, I love Baba Yaga and the way she like just fully embodies this very fierce, um, and wise um, feminine energy and I think women need more archetypes like that in their lives yeah mm-hmm. so again this story is like this coming of age story to me and a trip to Baba Yaga's hut is what is on the agenda when you're moving out into the wilderness you're going to meet a, a kind of formidable character like Baba Yaga there's other archetypes that are similar there's a story um about a Nana and a Rishkagal, which I think is, um, I can't remember where the tradition comes from, Syrian maybe, like an old. Yeah, like, it's ancient. If it's a Nana, that's ancient Syria. Yeah, so um, a really, yeah, really old one where mm-hmm. Anana's this maiden and she slowly like strips away the trappings of her upper world life as a princess. And then she meets a Rishkagal who is this very fearsome, terrifying underworld queen who then like like tears open Anana and hangs her on like meat hooks like up in down in the underworld. And I feel like this this again is that same moment of coming into the the basement room of like really mm. facing the ugly thing that's down there and letting it crack us open and that's I think what's happening here again with um Vasilisa. So mm. um this is the kind of story that I want my daughters to have and my son to have, um, Mm. to learn how to navigate the world without losing themselves to the external expectations of a patriarchal world Mm. and putting on all the trappings that are expected of them instead coming into their own and meeting Baba Yaga face to face and saying, yes, I will take on the challenge of my own maturity of my own Mm. growing up, my own self-actualization. And not running away from that. Mm. And at the beginning of the story, 
there's an essential thing that's happening there too, which is that this mother who dies in the beginning is, she's this very kind of soft, gentle, kind, beautiful young mother who um, has, you know, really loved and cherished Vasilisa, but she can no longer really hold what Vasilisa has to do, right? This journey Mm -hmm. that she has to go on. And it reminds me a little bit of your feelings about the, the LDS or the Mormon Heavenly Mother that we talked about in our Instagram live. Do you want to revisit that? Mm. How are you feeling <laughs> about the two good mothers? So Clarissa Pinkle S's calls her the two good mother. Let me mm. share this quote and then see how you feel. Okay. So the quote is, the two good mother is not adequate as a central guide for one's future instinctual life. In the tale, the initiatory process begins when the dear and good mother dies. The one who serves us appropriately and well in earlier times turns into a too good mother, one with uh, one which by virtue of her overly safeguarding values begins to prevent us from responding to new challenges and thereby deeper development. So, hmm. yeah, that initial kind of mother that's there archetypally isn't really sufficient for the mature journey that Vasilisa needs to go on. And she Mm -hmm. meets this other aspect of the sacred feminine, which is this gnarly, you know, crone wise woman Mm -hmm. character that can help maybe fill out the original archetype of this too good mother. Who's really soft, but unable to stand up to what Vasilisa needs to do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess you can tell me if you think this applies at all. But as I'm thinking about like all of these different aspects of the mother relationship, I I feel like for for me, if we're <laughs> if we're gonna go here, yeah. So Mormons do have this concept of there's God the Father, and then there's also a mother, but you pretty much don't ever talk about her, and you definitely can't talk to her, and Um, I feel like it feels a little bit to me like we're all sent to boarding school and (laughs) kind of that feels like an orphanage because mom and dad don't ever visit. And so like in talking to other kids at the boarding school, the boys are like, oh, I'm getting letters from dad. So dad sends us letters and I'll read them to you. And the girls are like, "Okay, please read us letters from dad. And but mom is dead because you never get a letter from mom. You can't, you don't write to her. So you just grow up with no mom and you can write letters to dad and you get them by yourself. But all the boys in the boarding school tell you exactly how to interpret all of dad's letters. And they're the only ones who can speak for dad. And then I feel like maybe the Catholics in this analogy have an aunt who writes to them or something. (laughs) And you're like, whoa, you have a woman in your life. You're so lucky. My mom's dead. And I guess I don't have any aunts. And then Mormon in Mormonism, it's like at some point somebody says to you, like, guess what? Mom's alive. And you're supposed to be really happy about that. And for me, I'm just pissed. Like I, my thought when I think of like the heavenly mother, I can't think about it because I'm so angry. If there's a heavenly mother, I just, I just feel like, wow, she never wrote and she didn't want to hear from me. 
And so when I think of like Vasilisa, the too good mother, I just feel like, yeah, she was never really there in the first place. She basically didn't have a mother. If she, if she, if there was one there, she died a long, long time ago. And Vasilisa is just going out into the forest alone. But the neat thing is that she does have whatever that doll is that it comes from the mother. And now I'm thinking of Frozen 2 and how yeah, Elsa's yeah. hearing the voice. It's like, I don't want to go to that scary into the unknown. And then it turns out it is her mother all along. But that's a much more positive mother. I just have, I guess I do feel very distrustful of mothers because where I relate most to Vasilisa in my personal life, I guess, is just like, well, I don't need a mother because I grew up kind of in an orphanage situation and I learned to be really strong and to walk through dark forests by myself. And But what I've developed is an ability to tap into my own strength and also like when what um, when I think of the sacred feminine or a, a mother, I guess, I think of, um, well, I'm a great mother. <laughs> and so I, I think of my relationship with my kids. I think of my sisters, like that's the sacred feminine. I see it in my sisters. I see it in you, Bergen. I see it in my friends. I see it in the people I know that are helping each other and in this goodness um, that women and men and non-binary people, like I see this principle of like goodness and nurturing in inside of all humans and like accessing it inside of ourselves feels safe to me. But I guess relying on any kind of mother figure just is fraught with, I guess, like a kid who feels abandoned. <laughs> yeah, and betrayed, yeah. And betrayed. But I I gained a lot of strength by growing up in that boarding school thinking my mom was dead the whole time. But yeah, that Mormon concept of like aren't you happy that we have the truth that we have a heavenly mother who has never talked to you and you have are not allowed to talk to you and like no, not comforting. No. <laughs> but maybe what you're saying, maybe what you're saying is like that too good mother, whatever that that's not who the great mother is. And I've seen that on your Instagram account too. Like, don't get that confused with what the great mother is. And maybe that's where I am in my journey. I still got to do some work. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh, just Amy, you wove just such a beautiful, your own beautiful myth. You, you made, <laughs> you took your life experiences and you wove your own myth with its own archetypes of the orphanage and the father that's writing letters to the boys and the mother who's silent. And, um, and I think you just illustrated the power of myth and story and archetypes in your, mm. in your own experience by saying, I'm in a, I'm going to give meaning and, and a sense of uh, orientation into what I've experienced by giving it a story. And sometimes that's the only way we can make sense of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to say, like, I just resonate so much with that feeling of abandonment and betrayal and this feeling of mistrust with a kind of um, archetypal mother figure that's been really created by the patriarchy. Right. Exactly. And I've said this before in other spaces, but I'll say it now, which is that I have no interest in that mother. 
the one that the patriarchy creates to kind of placate people and again make her pretty pleasing polite silent in the background always fading away always fading into the distance right yeah um, and I think this story really speaks to that because the beginning, the mother doesn't really add a lot of nourishment to the story, but she does give one important gift. And I am grateful for that one important gift, which is that that small indication that there's something here, the doll, right? And that maybe even this very co-opted mother figure that's been so heavily patriarchalized can give us this one gift Hmm. that somehow something of the truth of the, the real great mother is in some miraculous way coming through even all the patriarchal shit, right? All the patriarchal Mm -hmm. garbage, Mm -hmm. this one thread that, that Elsa finds right when she's in Otto Holland, that, it's you. It's mm-hmm. you you've been looking for. Mm-hmm. And the doll looks like Vasilisa for a reason, right? It's this mm-hmm. it's this little part of her that reminds her that it's her all along, right? That she mm-hmm. needs to hear. And that then we can take on the work of really bringing that great mother goddess crone Baba Yaga, whatever good archetypes we do want to bring into our lives and embody in our lives and see in the people around us, we can bring those in and say, like, I can become this mother figure to myself. I can nurture Mm -hmm. myself. I can validate myself. I can hold myself. I can bring this unconditional compassion to every little tantrum that is happening inside of me, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the power, I think, of the the archetypes is that they all live inside of us, right? And the two good mother who just cannot serve us the way we need in in real life, adult life, in the mature problems that we're facing, like, who is this? This, like, emaciated, like, woman that's just constantly, like, on her deathbed and isn't strong enough to say, no, I will not send my children to an orphanage they will be on my lap I will nourish them I will love them I'll be there for them right the the mother created by the patriarchy was never strong enough right because she had to serve a different purpose which was just to prop up something else right so I I love that in the beginning the two good mother dies she leaves us with one precious small gift that we get to develop And so in that sense, like the heavenly mother of my faith tradition might have pointed the way to a degree, but she cannot hold the totality of what the sacred feminine is or what these other archetypes can really embody. Um, She's an image that's just so heavily co-opted by the patriarchy and we have to let her go. She's not big enough to hold what we need, right? And we can claim the gift and we can thank the gift and say thank you. Um, again, like, like Bluebeard, like, thank you for this small gift, but, um, I'm going to now develop this connection with my own inner knowing and learn how to parent myself the way that I always needed it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to say about that? No. Great. (laughs) You, 
perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's just a lot I'll be carrying. It's a lot. It's so Thinking about that for a while. And I just, I, yeah, there's a lot of value in saying, no, this mother figure is, is not for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to find within myself this instinctive way of being able to tend to my own self and face the darkness. And um, and this Baba Yaga character kind of at least gives some hints to us as to what this kind of wild woman can really be, this great intuitive power that we can reclaim mm-hmm. as we mature. I'm not going to wait around for that old too good mother to rescue me from the orphanage mm-hmm. right she's not right. coming she's not no, coming. i'll have my own fiery skulls in my yard if you come by my house bergen and you see <laughs> yes. fiery skulls you'll know i've arrived <laughs> i like, seriously this kind of stuff has made me love like halloween and stuff so much uh-huh. because i'm like yes <laughs> i'm gonna have a chicken leg hut with skulls <laughs> in the oh my gosh <sighs> i love it i love it So just one more quick thing about um, the doll and Vasilisa and the way the doll helps her with all of these tasks. All the tasks to me, they symbolize that kind of, that very intricate work that we have to do when we're coming into that, like into our own of, like unraveling all the things that we've been taught, all the things that we see in our culture, all the external things that we've kind of internalized and taken in and which of it is true and which of it is good for us and which of it needs to be, you know, un unwoven and what, what do I want to keep and what do I, you know, want to get rid of? And that's, that's really takes a lot of kind of intuitive dexterity, right? And I think the beautiful thing that happens here with Vasilisa is while at first she kind of does a lot of that sorting herself, kind of like the intellectual work we talked about that we've kind of woven that thread through of sorting out, like, where did this come from? And why do I believe this? And like, why is our society set up this way? And, and why is this happen? Why is this pattern reemerging for me? Um, That the real work happens, not necessarily intellectually, with that but intuitively and that the doll while Vasilisa sleeps can really do that inner work Mm. and either destroy the old things or transform them or alchemize these things into something else into something new into something more useful and and that to me gives me a lot of relief that I don't have to always be making sense of it as long as I am trusting my intuition to kind of help me sort through. And I want to share this last quote from, from uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes um, talking about how this connection we have to our intuition is never really broken. We can always come back to it. And I think sometimes women that at least women that I've worked with have felt like I can't hear anything down there. Mm. Something is really wrong, right? I don't know what I want. I don't mm-hmm. know what I feel. I don't know what I really desire. I don't really know who I am. And it feels really scary because we've been told who we were, we were supposed to be and that's not working. 
I can't trust that anymore, but I don't know how to kind of come back into that knowing from within myself. And there's kind of that liminal space, that kind of space between the old house and the Baba Yaga house, right? Where we're not Mm -hmm. quite sure. Mm -hmm. We're having to just take those little crumbs as they happen. So Clarissa gives us some really beautiful wisdom here about that. She says, the breaking of the bond between woman and her wildest wildish intuition is often misunderstood as the intuition itself being broken this is not the fact it is not intuition which is broken but rather the matrilineal blessing of intuition the handing down the intuitive reliance between women and all females of her lines that have gone before her it is not it is that long river of women that has been dammed A woman's grasp of her intuitive wisdom may be weak as a result, but with exercise, it will come back and become fully manifested. Hmm. So it's really, like we mentioned earlier, it's really that the rite of passage of that passing down from Hmm. um, our families and our culture of how to begin that initiation of trusting ourselves, of going from being Hmm. a child who relies on you know, the adults in their life to tend to them and to take care of their needs into adulthood, that it's really that that's broken. It's, it's the system that's broken, not you. Mm. And that's one of the most insidious lies of the patriarchy is that we're broken. Something's wrong with me that I'm not happy in this thing, that I don't know myself, that I don't know what to do, that I feel, you know, like unfulfilled by these roles that I've been asked to play. But it's not you that's broken, right? It's the system that isn't serving you. It's the breaking of these, the culture and the traditions that we used to have to help us make these transitions. And mm-hmm. that you can reclaim them. Mm-hmm. And it might be a trickle, but you can break the dam, you know, like Anna breaking the dam again in Frozen yeah. 2. That great, um, that's such a great movie for this journey that women can take. And the water can flow again if you um, just practice. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's just a practice. Yeah, that, that, yes, exactly. That's a big takeaway from that part for me is that with practice, and she says with exercise, it will come back and be fully manis- manifested that you can reclaim that matrilineal line, that you can reclaim that, that tether to your own inner wisdom. And, and even like I said, in Untamed, when, when Glennon Doyle talks about her own personal practice, that meditating was really hard and arduous for her at first, but she just kept doing it and it got easier. Just like anything we practice, it it got easier until it's like it is just a constant presence and she can drop into that deep space like whenever she wants, just closes her eyes and gets into it and then comes back out. Okay, got the answer. That's something to to strive toward for sure. And that really comforting to know that it, it can be reclaimed. Okay, so quickly, wow, we could talk all day, Bergen, I know, and I'm I so would sorry. love it. No, no, me too. This is so fantastic. And and it's really an inexhaustible wealth of wisdom, this book is. Yes. But we'll just we're gonna um we're gonna skip ahead and do one last story and we'll do it pretty quickly but I do want to cover the story of the red shoes so could you summarize that Bergen yeah so the story of the red shoes is about a little girl she's an orphan so here we are tying that um your your personal myth (laughs) 
to the myth of the mm-hmm. red shoes. So this little girl is an orphan. She lives on her own out in the woods, out in nature, in the wilderness. And she's just kind of making her own way. She's, she finds, you know, berries and mushrooms and nuts and things to eat. And she makes friends with the animals and she gathers things and she's surviving and finds joy and pleasure in the little things. And she decides to make herself a pair of shoes. And so on her wanderings out in, in the woods, she finds little scraps of red fabric or, or leather that she can slowly but surely kind of fashion herself a pair of red shoes. And eventually she gets enough that she's able to make shoes for both of her feet and she puts them on and it brings her so much joy and pleasure. Every time she looks at her shoes, she feels so proud of herself and so fulfilled with all of her hard work. Um, And it just brings her all this joy to look at her feet and to see these red shoes that she's made for herself. Um, And then one day she's walking along a a road um, and uh, a very rich old woman comes by in a carriage in a very fancy carriage with horses and she has fancy clothes and she sees this little orphan girl on the side of the road and says, come with me, I'm going to take you and um, I'll take care of you and give you everything you could ever want, right? And so she takes the, the little girl in the carriage to her fancy house and um, and gives her everything she wants. She gives her new clothes and she takes her to a place to get shoes, uh, to the cobbler, right, to get some new shoes. And she gets a pair of black shoes that are for every day. And then she sees this shiny pair of like patent leather, bright, um, brand new, uh, very expensive red shoes. The old woman has already taken the little girl's homemade red shoes and she burns them in the fire. And suddenly the girl wants these other red shoes, the very fancy red shoes more than ever. And so she begs the old woman to buy the red shoes and she gets, and she does get them, but she can only wear them for special occasions. Right. Um, And over time, I won't go into the details of, of the middle section of the story, but um, essentially the girl becomes more and more obsessed with the red shoes and she wants to wear them all the time. And she wears them, she sneaks and she wears them to church one day. And the old woman doesn't want her to wear them to church because they're not humble looking, you know, they're too flashy and they're too, um, they call, they call too much attention to the girl for church, but she wears them to church anyways. And the old woman is, is partially blind. So she doesn't notice, right. That the girl is wearing them. And there's um, an old soldier at the at the doorway as she walks in with her new shoes and he mentions her shoes and taps them and uh, and essentially bewitches the the red shoes and um, eventually the shoes kind of take on a life of their own and they begin to dance without the girl's um, volition they begin to dance and they itch and she can't stop dancing and she, and the, and the shoes start to dance off with her throughout through the church and down the street and into um, the cemetery and down into the village. And she can't get the shoes off and she can't stop them. And uh, I think eventually the woman and her carriage 
uh, driver get the girl and they pull the shoes off and they're very difficult to get off, but they're able to get the shoes off. Um, but then again, the girl becomes so obsessed with the shoes and she can't stop thinking about them and she wants them so much. And so she puts them on again and they begin to dance off with her. Um, and she just dances and dances and dances and becomes so exhausted. And she dances through the town and down the street to the next town and down through the, the villages all around. And she eventually comes to um, a woodcutter, I believe, and he and she begs him to cut off her feet so that she can stop dancing. And he does. He cuts off her feet and the shoes go on dancing with her feet in them um, and become kind of like a ghost that like haunts, you know, the countryside and haunts all these little villages and towns um, dancing off. And she becomes a beggar that, you know, sits on the side of the road and begs and isn't able to walk. Um, because she's lost her feet. So that's the story of the red shoes. Again, the end. I know these, <laughs> so nice. these, oh, I honestly, I think there's like some part of my soul that just yearns for these kinds of stories that don't have all these like very plastic, happy endings, you know? Yeah. Yep. And that, that Clarissa Pingle Estes is really, this is a cautionary tale and it is yeah. very honest. Yeah it has this truthfulness to it that sometimes we don't get as women. Like we, we just hear all these fairy tales that it's happily ever after you get married and the, uh, to the prince and the story ends. Mm -hmm. And we never talk about what happens after that because what happens after that is, isn't, uh, isn't as appealing, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. It's the hard part. And we want Mm -hmm. women to stay in the fantasy in the fantasy that if you are just pretty and young and beautiful and do what you're told, everything will be great. And the real story happens when we wake up to reality, right? And I just love that Clarissa in these stories does not shy away from, you know, the gruesome parts of the, the really, the, the roots of these fairy tales have these gruesome endings and patriarchy has like whitewashed them and made them, these other kinds of fantasies that don't really tell the truth about um, life. Right. Yeah. 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 So tell me how you feel about the story. What sticks out to you? So I, I didn't see this in Dr. Estes's analysis, but for me, it, it felt very much like an allegory about sexuality um, just because So here's my interpretation that when she was little, that when she made her own red shoes, right, it was really authentic, her very own. She had no shame. She had no concept of like, well, you can't wear red shoes to this place or that place. It was just a source of joy. And it was very natural to her and organic. And it's only when the old lady shows up and kind of slaps her hand and says like, no, red shoes are too wild. Red shoes are inappropriate. And then her original red shoes that she made that were hers, that were organic to her, the old lady burns those red shoes. And so I see the old lady as an enforcer of patriarchy. Totally. And and she wants, she actually, there's a part in the story where like she takes her to get confirmed. So there's kind of like a Catholic um context of the story and it she gets confirmed on the day of the innocence and so this old lady is like 
stamping out her natural, you know, sexuality. So she craves that original part of herself, but all that's available now is the store-bought version. So I'm thinking like this is like the media version, the the manufactured Hollywood um, version of sexual of female sexuality. And to her, she's like, okay, well, that's better than nothing. It's not original to her, but she buys that instead. And then she seems she's shamed at church. So that's an obvious metaphor to me. Like, yeah. Shamed at church for exhibiting this. It's rebellious. And then I think I hadn't necessarily thought of this allegory until the moment where she walks by the man. And it's this much older man. He smiles. He winks at her. So immediately, like my like red flag. Predator. I, like di- pred- totally. Mm-hmm. Like he has very much predator energy in the story. He kind of winks at her. And then he's the one who like, makes the soles of her feet itch he takes control he takes control over those red shoes and so she had to dance against her will and so it just feels to me it felt like what sexuality can be so often in a patriarchal world um where either you know she wears the black shoes that the old lady tells her to wear so she's the Madonna, she's like the acceptable version. It's not her natural sexuality. It's no sexuality. It's asexuality. And she can go to church in those black shoes. Or you can be a whore where a man like chooses you and he touches your fake red shoes. And um, and in the story too, like the fake red shoes are made by a man also, not by her. And yeah. it, it's like this cobbler who kind of winks at her too. And he's like, oh, I'll make these for you. And so... There just were bad choices for this poor girl because her original ones got burned before she knew how to protect them and to say, nope, those are mine. Nobody gets to touch those. Nobody gets to take those from me. So there's one quote from Estes where she kind of proposes an alternate ending of the story, where if this little girl had just been able to stay alone in the forest, here's what might have happened instead. She says, if the child is left alone kind of like once she grows out of her homemade shoes, she will make another pair of red shoes and another and another until they are not so crude. She will progress even beyond her wondrous display of ingenuity and th- and thriving in difficult circumstances. The shining fact for her is that these shoes she has made cause her enormous joy. And joy is her life's blood, spirit food, and soul life all in one. So it's just like left me with this ache of what might have been if people hadn't meddled in this girl's um, journey of what she could have been and what she could have progressed to be if she'd just been left to make her own shoes the whole time. That was my analysis. Um, but Bergen, maybe you can walk us through like the metaphors that Estes describes or what did you think of this story? Well, first of all, I just, my heart is so happy that you brought up the like the Madonna horror split mm, happening mm-hmm. here, which I hadn't thought of in the context of this story. So that was really cool for me. That's definitely mm. a theme that comes up a lot in these in these, you know, feminine um, mystical myth myths and stories. And uh, yeah, I just I think you know, another addition to that would be, wouldn't it have been great if she had had like loving parents that were nourishing her and 
teaching her to really trust that creative drive she had to create a soulful life for herself and to, for her to feel safe doing that. And, um, yeah, I, so I really, I want to bring out this part of the analysis that Estes brings up, which is that the, the idea of the feral woman. So she uses, you know, like a feral cat, like cats are these domesticated animals, right. That we've taken from kind of their wild um, uh, roots and tamed them and made them, you know, able to be house cats and be like pets. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then when cats aren't tended to by a family, they just kind of go feral and they go out into the neighborhoods and they, you know, steal food out of people's trash cans and, and whatever, (laughs) you know, kind of can be a menace um, out in, in the wild again, because they've really been disconnected from their, their instincts as, as cats and, and the, the environment isn't really set up for them to go back to being, um, wild cats that live, you know, in the wilderness. And I think this is something that I've experienced a lot personally, where I know that deep down inside of me, I have this wild instinctual nature that's natural and has this ability to create a soulful life for myself. And then I was tamed, right? To use Glennon Doyle's terminology, I was, I was tamed by the patriarchy to be something else. Um, than this this wild thing that just is abhorrent to patriarchal values. Mm-hmm. And I tried to fit that and then I realized, oh gosh, this is hurting me. This is killing my soul to try to fit into this expectation. I just can't, I can't manage it. Um, and now I am learning how to reconnect with my instinct and wild nature, but the world is not really set up for me to bring her into being Um, my whole life, right. Is set up for this other tamed version of myself. Um, And that's, it's really painful. And I do feel that kind of feeling of like being feral, like, I don't know where to put all this new energy. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, like I'm reclaiming this thing and my intuition is telling me this, but I got to go pick up my kids from school or like, I've got to make dinner (laughs) or like, I need to, we need to have income to survive. And all the jobs Mm -hmm. that are available are, you know, are not soulful are not Mm -hmm. creative. They're very um, kind of that, masculine centric way of being and I just I just want to roll around in the dirt and make fires in my backyard and be like an old creepy witch you know like (laughs) my soul is like let's wipe mud on our faces and you know and howl at the moon but I live in an I live in a neighborhood with street lights and people looking into my backyard you know Mm -hmm. and I just it's very disorienting and it's um it's in some ways more painful than facing the darkness in my basement to come up and realize, Oh, the world is still the same. Mm -hmm. I'm different. I'm changed. I've reclaimed this part of myself that was lost, but the world has not done that. Mm. Um, And that's a really, it's that's in some ways the most difficult part of the journey. Mm. Um, It's all difficult in its own way, but it's like, re-entering the atmosphere like coming back from Arishkagel into the upper world and saying oh 
y'all are still doing the old stuff <laughs> and crap, you oh, know, Lord. and I'm in relationship to all these people, to my children, to my spouse, to my parents, to my neighbors, to my church community. And like, how do I navigate that? Oof. And mm. Clarissa Pinkola says gives, I, I'll share a quote with her of some wisdom she gives for this. And she says, psychically, it's good to make a halfway place. A way station, a considered place in which to rest and mend after one escapes the famine. So she's like, after we realize we've been tamed and we've escaped that, we need a safe place, right? It is not too much to take one year, two years to assess the wounds, to seek guidance, to apply medicines, to consider the future. The feral woman is a woman making her way back. She is learning to wake up, pay attention, and stop being naive and uninformed. She takes her life into her own hands, and to relearn the deep feminine instincts, it is vital to see how they were decommissioned to begin with. So she gives, I think, really good advice that if we can create some safe spaces for ourselves that are in the middle, maybe we have a few friends that we can talk to and, and um, connect with, or we give ourselves that, you know, meditative time in the morning to, to kind of be with this wild part of ourselves as we learn how to integrate it. And, um, and that's really part of what we do with womb is try to create those safe spaces for women to come back to themselves. Um, and I was so, so lucky to have spaces like that as I was coming back into real life from, the underworld, just women who held me, who had those hard conversations with me. And I had therapists and um, just like other like somatic processing people and like EMDR and books and podcasts. And just like those can all create this kind of halfway place where we can feel safe to be unguarded and work through um the wounds that we've discovered and apply those medicines. So I just want to encourage anyone listening to this going, Oh crap, like I'm going to come back and I won't know what to do that. You can create these safe circles for yourself uh, and have support systems in place so that you have a safe place to do the healing that needs to happen. And Estes says here at the end, even the most injured instincts can be healed. And to a right this, we resurrect the wild nature over and over again, each time the balance tips too far in one direction or the other. And it is kind of a balancing act of going into the dark, working with what you find there, and then coming back up into the light and doing the work of integrating it into real life, and then going again into the dark. It's a cycle. Um, it's that same kind of life, death, life cycle that you'll find over and over again in the sacred feminine stories in this of like the seasons, you know, and the moon phases and the menstrual cycle. And um, like, they're always like coming up into the upper world and then going back down and then coming up and going down. And it's okay if you're in the up part right now. And it's okay if you're in the down part right now. Uh, and that that is a process that happens of us dipping in and coming back out over and over anytime we need to. Uh, and yeah, having safe places to do that really, really helps. 
Well, thank you, Bergen, for being a safe place for listeners to do that work. I felt like even just during this episode, I felt like you were holding my hand as we, you know, went into the basement with the young woman in the in Bluebeard's castle and into the woods to seek fire with Vasilisa. And as we talked about the damage that can be done when somebody burns our shoes and we have to wear somebody else's shoes. And you're just such a safe place. And I know that's really your life work is to facilitate people's growth and um, awareness and helping there be a safe place as, as people kind of undertake those really daunting journeys. And one other thing really quickly as we wrap up this story is I just wanted to say, you know, as I think about you howling at the moon is also that society really tries to stamp out everybody's wild nature, right? Everybody's joyful nature, including men and just all humans, regardless of gender. And the people actually who I know in my life who are some of the most aware of this and they really chafe against those limitations are my husband and my son, actually. And, you know, I just think of my son who has always just really struggled to just sit still and listen for hours and hours and hours in elementary school or in church. And and men who are, you know, expected to sign away their lives by these patriarchal norms that, you know, the men have to provide and have all of this re- responsibility on their shoulders. And so they, you know, sometimes feel like they're being turned into robots in factories or cubicles, and it just sucks the life out of them as well. And they need to go in, and do that soul work in the cave too and be able to paint their faces with mud and I feel like this soul work and this journey benefits everybody for sure um what what was a takeaway for you as we wrap up this story my biggest takeaway from this story is that I do want to live a soulful life and I want to I want to make my own red shoes, even if they're crude at first. And I want that joy and the fulfillment of making something out of my life that is authentic to who I am as a human being and bring that gift to the world so that other people can do the same. And Estes says, to hold to joy, we may sometimes have to fight for it. We may have to strengthen ourselves and go full bore, doing battle in whatever ways we deem shrewd. To prepare for siege, we may have to go without most things for a long period of time. Anything almost, but not our joy. Not those handmade red shoes. And I, to that I say, amen. Amen. Well, that is a beautiful place to end the conversation. And I just want to thank you so much for being here today. I feel like I, you know, went on a journey myself and I am so grateful that you were my guest for this book, which is really the perfect way to end season one. Like I said before, we we began season one in the Neolithic age before there were written records with images of goddesses and the the power of the feminine. And I feel like this soul work, this internal work is a really beautiful and powerful way to end this journey that we've been on in season one. And so thank you for um, kind of being a catalyst so that we would read this book and, and 
provide a discussion of it on the podcast. And I just want to thank you so much, Bergen, for being here. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm sending you lots of love and I'm just so grateful for this conversation and all the work you're doing. And for every, just to every single person who does the work of reclaiming their souls and does the work of speaking the truth of, of their experience and speaking truth to these systems. And it's such important work to do. And there's so much power in healing and us using our voices in this way. It's a reclamation of its own to just tell the truth, to say something is, is here that needs to be looked at. And um, I'm just really grateful to do that, walk with you in that in our own unique ways. So thank you. Me too. Thanks, Bergen. Okay, that wraps it up. We have been through 66 very long episodes this year. So thank you listeners for reading and listening. I have learned an astounding amount this year from these texts and from my reading partners. And I hope you've learned things too that have been helpful in your lives. And I'm so grateful for everybody's support on social media. And I just feel so incredibly grateful for this journey and to know that there's a whole community of people who have joined together to go on this journey as well. We have one episode left this season, and that's going to be a recap of season one where my husband Eric and I are going to do a speed round of a quick takeaway or two from each text. And then we'll answer some questions that we got on social media and maybe tell a behind the scenes story or two and just kind of share our reflections on season one. And we're going to film that as well and and have a video of it for the first time. And so if you can listen to it if you want to like normal or you can watch it. And then next week, right afterwards, we will immediately launch season two, which will not be a book club and it won't be chronological, but instead it will feature a wide variety of topics in the form of stories and audio essays, and uh, it will highlight people's stories from the United States. Season one was mostly United States history. There was some England, there was a tiny bit of France, um, but it mostly centered on the United States with our, our timeline. And so season two will highlight stories almost all from the United States as well. Then just a sneak peek ahead, season three will be a book club again and we'll take the project internationally as we promised at the beginning that it was going to be a worldwide project. And so we'll select a continent and a region of the world and we'll go back to reading essential texts first and then we'll highlight people's stories from that part of the world. But in the meantime, join us for the very last episode of season one, which will be a wrap up with me and my husband, Eric, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs>